Well, good morning, everyone. It's so good to be with you. All cards on the table. Steve Wallen hasn't heard this message, so he has no idea if this is a great one or not, okay? So you be the judge of that in about 30 minutes. But uh, last week, we did kick off a brand new series, and it's a series that's going to take us through most of the Sundays this year. We've titled it Grow. And as the name implies, the purpose behind this is for us to grow in our relationship with Jesus in the coming year. We're going to do that by studying through the Gospel of John both here on Sunday mornings and in our connection groups, and hopefully uh, you alone in your private study time. But we're going to work verse by verse through the entire Gospel of John this year. And I want to invite you to participate in a couple of specific ways. Um, First, we have journals and reading plans out at the Info Hub. Those reading plans are also available at our website, Genesis Church. Uh, me and just click the grow tab. You'll find the reading plan there. But if you haven't picked one up yet, we'd love for you to, to grab a reading plan this morning and a journal and to use that because here's what I think you'll find to be true. Your growth in Christ this year will be equal to the time that you devote to studying God's word and the time that you devote to prayer and and to journaling and to applying the things that you discover to your life. God's word does not return void. And so I want to encourage you to commit time uh, this year to studying his word. Second, uh, as Steve mentioned just a minute ago, we're going to be launching that semester, winter semester of our connection groups. And if you've never been in a group before, uh, many of those groups are going to be discussing the John study. And so uh, consider joining a group. Consider growing alongside some other people. These are just two really simple things that you can do to grow in your relationship with Jesus this year. And I hope you'll make these things a priority because, like I said, our growth is going to be in proportion to Uh, the effort that we put into this. So let me pray together, and we're going to get started here this morning. Father God, uh, I thank you so much for the hope that you have given us in Christ. And I know that there are many in this room, Father, who have uh, come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior, and that there are some here today who have not. They are on a journey and seeking God and, and asking questions. And I pray today, Lord, that you would would open up our hearts and our minds. Whether we are are already walking in uh, community with you or maybe still find ourselves, God, far from you, Lord, would you draw our hearts and our minds today to understand your word, to, uh, to, to see, Father, what it is that you want to teach us today from your word. Again, your word says that it does not return void. And so, Father, would you just honor the time Uh, that we're about to spend here today and grow us in it by your Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, last week, uh, our Carmel campus pastor, Jerry Neville, recommended that I check out a documentary titled The Rescue. Have any of you watched uh, this documentary? It's on Disney+. Plus. It might be other places, but uh, I highly recommend it, especially if you're claustrophobic or afraid of water. You're going to love it, okay? Because the documentary tells the story of the incredible rescue of those 13 boys who were trapped in a cave in Thailand back in 2018. Do you remember that news story? They were exploring a cave when this monsoon-like storm uh, came on them and flooded the entrance to the cave. It blocked their way out and trapped them inside. And over the course of the next few weeks, hundreds of people from all over the world came together to to try to figure out how are we going to get these boys out alive. 
And uh, I've got a few pictures to help you understand just how difficult their rescue mission was. This first picture uh, shows the different elevations of the cave system. And as you can see, there were a, a number of places where water could uh, pool up and, and block the, the entrance, block the exit. But the cave doesn't go straight back, as this picture might suggest. The next picture is what it would look like from the air. And you can see that it, that it moves quite a bit from side to side and even doubles back on itself. And remember, this is, this is a cave. It's totally dark in there. Many, many portions of it, most of it was flooded, and so it had to be searched using scuba gear. This next picture shows you what the, the flooded portions look like, and, and you might think the graphic isn't up yet, but it is. This is exactly what they saw when they were underwater, and that, that line right there is, is their lifeline. As they swam into the cave with different places where they could turn to the left or the right, if they ever let go of that, that lifeline, it was highly unlikely that they would find their way back out. And so you're beginning to understand why this seemed like such an impossible mission. But let me add one more thing. The water wasn't sitting stagnant. It was a flowing river. It was rushing through this cave. The divers described it as white water scuba diving. Sometimes the, the water was moving so quickly that these rescue divers, uh, they feared to, to turn to the right or to the left because the current was strong enough it would have just ripped their mask from their face. And so you start to understand like the, it just seemed utterly impossible for this rescue mission to be successful. And, and after about a week of searching for the boys in, in the flooded cave, rescuers began to fear the worst that they'd never find the boys, that even if they did find them, they, there's no way they could still be alive. But on day nine, two of the, the divers decided to push the limits of their air tanks and to go as far into the cave as they possibly could. And that risk paid off because when they surfaced about two and a half miles into the cave, here's what they found. All 13 of the boys still alive. And uh, while finding the boys alive was incredible, now the rescuers faced the even more difficult task of getting them out underwater and in the dark. And if you want to know how the story ends, you'll have to go watch the documentary for yourself. But I want you to think for a minute this morning about how helpless it must have felt uh, to see that water come up and to know that the only way out of this cave is now blocked. I want you to think about how hopeless it must have been for those boys as they sat there in the darkness wondering if anyone would ever find them alive. And I want you to think about that this morning because it's actually a pretty good analogy for the spiritual condition of our world. Because when sin flooded into our world way back in the Garden of Eden, the result ever since has been a world that's filled with darkness and fear and death. And John was well aware of these realities when he wrote his gospel. In fact, if you brought a Bible today, I want to invite you to open up to the gospel of John, the very first chapter. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, there are some on the table in the back of the room, and you're welcome to grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, please keep one of those as your own. It's our gift to you. But John chapter 1 is where we'll start today, and you're going to see that John spends the first 18 verses of chapter 1, addressing the realities of darkness and death in our world. But his purpose is not to leave us in despair. Rather, his purpose is to give us hope. And here's how he starts in John chapter 1, verse 1. He says, In the beginning 
was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, if you have ever picked up a Bible and just started reading, uh, these words might seem familiar to you. This actually isn't the first time we find the phrase, in the beginning, in the Bible. Those words are also the very first words of the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And in Genesis 1.1, we read that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So John uses the phrase in the beginning to connect the story of the entire Bible, the story that God has been telling for centuries, to the story that he's about to tell about the life of Jesus. We read that, that God, in Genesis 1, we read that he spoke, and by the power of his words, everything came into existence. But when John says that in the beginning was the word, he isn't just repeating the idea of God speaking creation into existence. No, the word that John is referencing is Jesus himself. It's a title given for Jesus himself. We get a better sense of, of what he's saying by simply inserting Jesus' name into the text. If we read, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God, that seems a whole lot easier for us to understand, doesn't it? So why didn't John just say that? Why didn't he just put Jesus' name in there? Well, the Greek word that John uses here is the word logos. And logos was a word that John's Jewish and Gentile readers alike would have been very familiar with. His Jewish readers were familiar with passages from the Old Testament, especially from the Psalms, where the word of God is, is personified often as a person carrying out the will of God. We see it in places like Psalm 107.20 that says, He sent out his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. Psalm 147.15 says, He sends his commands to the earth. His word runs swiftly. It's a personification of the will of God. And, and that's how his Jewish readers would have understood this. But then in the 6th century BC, Greek philosophy came in. And it understood Logos in a different way. In Greek philosophy, Logos represented a bridge between God or the gods and the material world. For those Greek philosophers, the Logos was the power that puts sense into the world. It was the thing that, that made the world orderly and kept it going in an orderly way. The Logos was the ultimate reason that controlled all things. That's how one commentary described it. So by referring to Jesus as the Word, John uses a term that both Jew and Gentile alike could recognize and understand, and he uses it as a door to introduce them to Jesus Christ. For years, even for centuries, these folks have been talking about and thinking about and writing about the Word, and now John says, let me introduce you to him. And he explains the gospel in terms that they already understood. Now look at verse 2. John says, referring to the word, he says, He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. And you notice that he's now switching to some personal pronouns here. He and, and him in these verses. If, if there was any question from verse 1 that John was referring to an actual person, the question is resolved here. And Warren Wearsby points out that in just the first three verses of his gospel, John makes some enormous claims about Jesus. 
First, that Jesus Christ is the eternal word, meaning he has always existed. There was never a time when Jesus wasn't. In fact, even before time, Jesus was. He was with God in the beginning, and when the beginning began, he had already existed for all of eternity past. So Jesus is the eternal word of God, but he's also the creative word. And John tells us that Jesus was active in creation. He wasn't just sitting off to the side while God the Father did all of the heavy lifting. No, he was with God, and he was God, and through him all things were made. In fact, John says that nothing has been made that, that wasn't made without him. He is the eternal word, always existing, and he is the creative word, active in the creation of all things. Now look at verse 4. John says, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When, When John says that in him was life, he uses another important Greek word here. It's it's the word zoe. And that's important because in Greek, there's actually two different words that can be translated as life in the English. There's there's bios, which is just where we get our word biology, biological life. And that's what we saw happening in the creation account. But then there's zoe, which literally means the life principle. And that's the word that John uses here. He uses it to communicate that Jesus is the source of life. He's the source of of all life, not just biological, but also spiritual life, eternal life. He is the life source. And John says that, that his zoe was the light of all mankind. What does that mean? Well, that image of light shining in the darkness reminds me of a, a powerful scene from the rescue. It was day nine, the day when they finally found the boys and uh, the divers surfaced in in this air pocket and began looking around. But all of the divers had these homemade looking helmets on and uh, all over their helmets were were lights. Just it looked like they were duct taped on it. You've got to see it to believe it. But but they just were these homemade like like mining lights and as they, they navigated the, the murky water of the cave, they had to use those lights, even though they could only see a short portion in front of them. That's how they would see that, that rescue rope and, and try to see where they were going. Well, the, the boys in the cave had been sitting there in absolute darkness. But now on, on day nine, as the divers emerged from the water, all of a sudden that light from their helmets flooded the cavern. And it turns out the boys had a light of their own that they had been uh, conserving. And when they saw this light come in, they, they flashed their own light back at the divers. That light in the dark cave meant rescue was at hand. It meant hope. And this is similar to what John describes in verses 4 and 5. Jesus, the eternal and creative word, he entered his creation and his life was like a light shining in the darkness. And you would think that humanity's response would be like the response of those boys, right? Just complete joy. We're we're found. We're saved. But John describes something different in verse 9. He says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. 
So, so Jesus was there at the beginning. He was active in creation, creating everything that has been created. But then the creation rebelled against him. Sin entered, and because of sin, death became our reality. And that's when the creator did something unthinkable. He, he actually stepped into his creation. It's what Paul describes in Philippians chapter 2. He says that Jesus was in, in very nature God, but he did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, something to be used to his advantage. But instead, he made himself nothing, and he took the form of a servant, and he was made in human likeness. Jesus took on flesh. He added humanity to his deity, and he entered his creation. And John says that he came to bring light and to bring life to this dark and dying world, but that the world didn't recognize him, and they didn't receive him. The overwhelming response to God's rescue mission was, no thanks. We don't know who you are. We don't believe you are who you say you are. And we really don't think we need saving anyway. We're good. It just goes to show the depth of the depravity of mankind. That we would be so content in our rebellion against God that we would refuse his gracious offer to save us from the consequences of it. And that was my story. And for some of you, that's still your story, but it doesn't have to be. Look at verse 12. John says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Folks, John 1.12 is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture because it so clearly presents the hope of the gospel. And John uses two words here uh, to describe that moment when someone puts their faith in Jesus. He talks about receiving and he talks about believing. It's that moment when, when a person turns away from their sinfulness they stop trusting in their own goodness to, to save them, and they turn toward Christ, and they trust in his goodness. Charles Spurgeon uh, describes what, what we read about in verse 12 by saying that faith, described as receiving, it's that empty cup that's placed under a flowing stream. And when a person does that, when they, when they receive Christ, they believe in his name, John says there's a rebirth that happens. We are born of God. We become children of God. And that truth uh, left a lasting impact on John. We know that because you're going you're gonna to find this throughout his gospel, that he comes back to this idea of us being God's children. We also find it even later, years later, when he wrote these words in 1 John chapter 3. He said, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And I wonder this morning, is that what you are? Is that what you are? Are you a child of God? If you have received Jesus, if you have believed in his name, then the answer is yes. Your identity is now secure as God's child. That's what you are. Did you notice in John 1.12, he doesn't say that to some who received him 
Or to some who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He said, all who put their faith in Christ receive this new identity. All who believe in Christ. But the problem comes in when we forget our identity as children of God. One of the things that's really interesting about John's writings is how much he talks about love. In fact, several people refer to, uh, to his gospel as the love gospel because he's just so focused on it. He, he just keeps coming back to this idea of love. But do you realize that wasn't always true of John? In fact, in his younger days, John was known for having quite a temper to the point that in Mark chapter 3, we read that Jesus gave John and his brother James the nickname Sons of Thunder. Okay, it sounds like a pro wrestling team, doesn't it? The Sons of Thunder. But in Luke's gospel, there's actually a story about a group of people who rejected Jesus. They just flat out rejected him. And John and James are so incensed by this that they suggest Uh, They they actually asked for permission to pray that God would just rain down fire on these people. Burn them up. Let's light them up, right? So the nickname Sons of Thunder, it seems pretty fitting. But apparently, the longer John walked with Jesus, the more he learned that his identity as a son of thunder didn't really fit anymore. And he needed to let that go so that he could fully embrace his identity as a child of God. And that's what he did. And maybe you have a similar story. Maybe there's something in your past that has left you hurt and angry, and you're tempted to live as a son or a daughter of thunder. Or maybe you work really hard so that your nickname can be son of success or daughter of popularity or any number of things. But John reminds us this morning that Jesus left heaven, entered our world, lived a perfectly obedient life, and then laid that life down so that through faith in him, we could be given the only identity that matters. It's the only identity that will last for all of eternity, and it's the identity we were created for as children of God. So if you are a Christian, if you have received Jesus and believed in his name, in this coming year, as as we make it our goal to grow together, to grow in our relationship with Christ, let's begin by growing in our identity as God's children, because that's what we are. And when you feel those old things trying to creep back in and and trying to to be the things that, that identify you, remember this verse. And put it to memory and say it to yourself. Say it out loud. Remind yourself that to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called the children of God. And that is what I am. I want you to do that. I want you to put that into practice this year and grow in your identity as a child of God. But one more thing I want to highlight before we close, and, and this is so important. Because the popular view today is that everyone is a child of God, right? I hear that all the time. We're all God's children. And what I think people mean when they say that is that God created us all, which that's true. God loves us all. That's also a true statement. But according to God's own word, we are not all his children. When John says at the end of that statement, that is who we are, 
we need to ask who he's writing to. Who, who's he talking to? And the answer is he was writing to believers. 1 John was written to people who had received Christ, to people who had believed in his name, to those he gave the right to become children of God. And I don't want you to miss this because we make a terrible mistake when we refuse to accept the fact that faith in Jesus is the only way to become a child of God. It's the only way. Not everyone is God's child. But at the heart of the gospel is the truth that anyone can be his child. Through faith in Christ, our sins can be forgiven and we will be reborn as children of God. It's the best gift ever, but it must be received on God's terms. So I want to ask again, according to that definition, according to, to what the Bible has to say about being God's child, is that you? Are you a child of God? Have you received Jesus? Have you believed in him for the forgiveness of your sins? And if the answer to that question is no, it pains me to say, but you are not God's child. It brings me no joy to tell you that this morning because that means you are still living independent and separate from God. It means that your sins have not been forgiven. It means that you are not on a path that leads to heaven and eternity with God, but rather you are on a path that is leading you farther and farther away from him and ultimately ends in hell. But here's the good news. It's not too late. It's not too late. God is pursuing you right now. The fact that you are sitting here in this room hearing the gospel clearly presented is evidence that God desires for you to come into this right relationship with him. God is drawing you even now. You are hearing this for a reason, and God is patiently waiting for you. He does not want you to be eternally separated from him. God's word says, now is the time, and today can be the day of salvation for you. Today, you have that opportunity to receive Christ, to believe in his name for the forgiveness of your sins. And as Spurgeon described faith as that empty cup under the flowing stream, you can know that God will not turn away from you. No, he will fill that cup to overflowing, and you will be born again as a child of God. If you're ready to do that today, uh, you can pray a simple prayer, and, and I want to help lead you through that. I'd ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads with me. And I want you to know that, that these words we're about to pray, there's nothing magical about them. Okay, these aren't the magic words, and if you say them, you're in, and if you don't, you're not. But if you pray something like this from your heart, and you mean it, God will hear, and he will respond. And you can simply pray something like, God, I, I confess to you this morning that I am a sinner. I recognize that I have rebelled against you in so many ways. But I believe that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfectly righteous life and then laid his life down so that I could be forgiven. God, I'm ready to turn from my sin today. I want to receive Christ. I believe in his name alone to save me. And I thank you, Father, for the right to be called a child of God.
God, you died for me. I will live for you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Folks, I want you to know if you prayed a prayer like that from your heart today, uh, you are now a child of God. And let me be the first to welcome you to his family. And as you look around this room this morning, you can see that, that you now have a lot of new brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, I'll admit, it's a weird family, okay? But that just means you're going to fit right in. And uh, I want you to know that if you prayed that prayer to receive Christ, that is not something that's meant to be done in secret. It's not something that's meant to be done alone. The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. So your next step is to tell somebody. Tell the person you came with this morning. Come up front afterwards and tell me or, or Steve, we'll be up here. But tell someone the decision that you just made. Because we want to help you grow in Christ.